Good evening and welcome to the third installment in the 18th season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer coming to you from the sanctuary of St. Philip Deacon in the western suburb of Minneapolis, Plymouth. Uh, St. Philip Deacon is delighted to present these events as a community service. And we are thrilled to have you joining us uh, tonight. A special welcome to anyone who's joining us for the first time. If this is your first time joining us, know that we're profoundly grateful for your presence and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the 18th season of these events. And over that period, we've brought in five speakers every year. Uh, they have ranged from business leaders to nonprofit leaders, to authors, to artists, to uh, theologians, to bloggers, to counselors. Um, and the commonality with all of them is that they're all self-professed Christians talking about how the Christian faith informs whatever it is that they uh, do in their daily life. I will say just a word about the flow for tonight after I introduce our speaker for the evening. You'll hear from him for about 30 minutes, maybe give or take. Um, and then we'll have an opportunity for you all in real time, we're coming to you in real time, to be asking questions of him, which I will give to him. Uh, and you can send us those questions at social uh, at spdlc.org or uh, by commenting on whatever platform you are viewing this on. And so we hope you will send us those questions uh, so that I can uh, ask our speaker them uh, later in the evening. Uh, tonight's speaker, uh, we are delighted to have him. He is a husband and a father of three. Uh, he's a speaker. He's an author. Uh, he's a marriage and leadership coach. Uh, he does a podcast. Um, I, you know, one, I will say as a pause, we're obviously doing this virtually, and I hope that we will be able to do these live uh, again in, with people here in the sanctuary very soon. Uh, but one of the things that I miss about not doing them live is the chance to visit with our speakers, uh, typically when I pick them up at the airport. Uh, our speaker and I did connect last week uh, on a Zoom call, so we had a chance to visit a bit. And when I do visit with our speakers, I, it gives me the chance to ask questions about things that they do that people may not know about. And a couple of the facts that he brought up when we chatted were, uh, one, he has a, a dog named Copper, who is feisty. He uh, equated him to Tigger the Tiger. Uh, he also mentioned, interestingly, that he grew up in Pennsylvania uh, as a Lutheran. In the history of this series, uh, we've actually not had many Lutherans, um, so we're glad to have someone who at least came originally out of that tradition, although uh, he has moved into a different tradition since then. Maybe he will talk about that. In any case, thank you for joining us, and we're delighted to present tonight Josh Straub. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be with you. Uh, as Tim said, I uh, have three kids and uh, you'll hear some stories about them tonight as we talk about uh, creating space for emotional intelligence uh, and emotional safety within the context of the home. And that, that phrase or that word could really sound overwhelming if you're a parent who uh, yells at their kids or who has caught themselves saying things they regret and turning around and apologizing. And uh, I'm one of those parents. Uh, I think as we look at parenting today, a lot of what I do is I look at research. I love to study literature. I love to, to, to scour what's out there. What really are the best practices? Uh, because I want to apply them in my own life. I want to make sure that I raise uh, kids who live, love, and lead well. And one of the biggest things that I've learned as a parent through the years is you don't have to be a parent for more than five seconds to realize it's the most guilt-ridden, shaming task on the planet. Uh, they feel like you're failing in some way. 
you can't even leave the hospital without making a decision about whether or not you're going to immunize your baby. And if you haven't done research on it, uh, you'll feel overwhelmed as soon as you do. And then you get them home and there's debates about breastfeeding and bottle feeding. And do we spank? Do we not spank? Do we do timeouts or do we do time ins? Because now you got to do a time in instead of a timeout, according to research. And, 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 and I didn't even get into BPA free products, gluten free diets, or, you know, safety gates or any of that nonsense. So it's like, parenting is so overwhelming. It's so anxiety producing. And for us, we experienced that very reality early on in our own parenting. You know, I was 30 by the time we got married. My wife was 26. So we felt like we were, we were pretty well set. Uh, but when we got married, our greatest opponent came into our marriage weighing eight pounds and three ounces. And he was full of colic and acid reflux and stomach. Uh, our daughter then came two years later and she had stomach allergies that we couldn't figure out. And to be very honest with you, we were exhausted and we were overwhelmed. And uh, so, you know, I was with a friend today and we were talking, we couldn't imagine ourselves having kids when we were in our 20s. We feel like we wouldn't have been mature enough. Uh, and so, you know, so many people having kids and you're just like, you, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by all the decisions. But then what happens when you bring your baby home and you have all of these other issues compounding on top of it? And one of the things that I wanted to do early on is I... I, I looked at the research and I said, it's got to be easier than this. Like we were really overwhelmed. The strain on our marriage, we were feeling that. Uh, my wife threw her back out about uh, two years. I uh, see our daughter would have been six months old. Our son would have been two years old at the time. She threw her back out for three weeks. Um, she was laying on her back. She had a, she, she literally had a, a porta potty right next to the bed and was using a walker to get to that because her back for three weeks, she was completely immobile. And so I'm taking care of the two babies trying to work. And, and so you can imagine at that time, my dad was also in the hospital with congestive heart failure and had just received a heart pump. We were all over the place. I mean, that there was so much trauma coming from the outside, but also internally from the inside. And so we were really overwhelmed in those early years of parenting. And I wanted to look at the research. I wanted to see what is it that led to raising great kids. Like at the end, when I'm sitting on my rocking chair, you know, at 80 years old, and I'm looking back through the generations and I'm saying, what really mattered as it related to raising my children? What is that? And when I went, I scoured the research. The one thing that I found throughout the, all of research was this term called emotional safety and or, 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 or secure attachment. But the idea that we create a secure base for our children, that we create an emotionally safe environment for our children. And that's the breeding ground for them to get the outcomes we're looking for in our kids. And I'll give some of that research tonight and some of those practical examples as it relates to our own lives. But the reason for that is, is, is really profound. It's profound because when our children are anxious and overwhelmed, our ability as a parent to calm their overwhelmed brain in those moments helps them to think straight. I remember when our when the first two, so we have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and then we also have an eight-month-old. So there's a reason, there's the age gap, and you heard a little bit about that already. So we have, uh, when, our, when our eight and our six-year-old, when they were in preschool, this was a few years ago, I remember coming home, and typically what we would do is Christy had the kids during the day. I would come home and I would, you know, take over as soon as I got home and, and we had our, our, our routine and our rhythm. 
And bedtime, I love bedtime. And you'll see, you'll see why here in just a little while. But I love bedtime. And, and I remember getting the kids ready. Uh, it was my turn to get the kids ready for bed. And Christy, when they, didn't, when they went to preschool, and the days they went to preschool, they didn't nap that day. And you know when a child is either, uh, when they're overwhelmed, it's usually you go through your list, it's usually hungry or tired. Well, that particular day, they were extremely tired. And, uh, and, and when they're tired at bedtime, what happens to a child? They get extra energetic. Well, Christy gives me the kids and says, okay, they're yours now. You can tuck them into bed. And she goes into the laundry room right across the room from our son's bedroom. Uh, because uh, though she doesn't love doing laundry, at least it was therapy. Uh, folding clothes was therapy for her because it involved just being alone, right? Well, because it was right across the room from our, uh, our son's bedroom, I wasn't moving fast enough. Uh, for her, apparently. And so I'm the type of guy, when I'm driving down the road, I don't like a lot of noise. Like I drive in silence a lot of times. Uh, I, I tend to get overwhelmed pretty easily with, with loud noises, which doesn't bode well for raising kids. But I, my frustration tolerance can get pretty high if, I get, if it gets loud. So the kids are running around and I had them under control. I genuinely had them under control. But as I'm as, as, as they're running around and they're loud, I wasn't moving fast enough for Christy. So she steps out of the laundry room and she says, in just the most, as you can imagine, spousal, gentle way, are you going to do something with them? And now her, her, her decibel level has to go a little bit higher than the children's in order to get my attention. Well, guess where that sends the children's? It sends the children's up here because they want to be have attention. And all of a sudden, I'm getting overwhelmed. And I just yelled, stop! Everybody stop. As soon as I did, I looked down and my son's bottom lip starts to quiver. And I knew in that moment that his brain was overwhelmed. And I had some repairing to do, uh, not only with my kids, but later on with my wife as well. And so in that moment, one of the things that I want to do tonight is I want us to look at five ways that we can create an emotionally safe environment, that we can create the space for emotional intelligence and emotional safety in our home. And what I want to do is if I, if I could, if I didn't have this and I was in person with you, I would get down on my knee right now. And what I did with my son is I had to get down on my knee and I had to extend my, it's like extending my hands out and saying, buddy, I am so sorry for the way that I just spoke to you. And it, what I got to do in that moment is I have to enter my child's world because his or her brain, Kennedy's brain, our daughter's brain also was overwhelmed in the moment. Overwhelmed, right? And so when there's emotional overwhelm in our kids, they tend to act out or they tend to uh, throw a temper tantrum or whatever the like is. Our ability to enter our children's world to find out what's going on is the key idea here tonight. So we want to enter their world to help them tell their story. Um, one of the ways that I want to do that, I want you to see that, is that when a child's brain is overwhelmed, what happens is, is the fight, flight, or freeze goes off in their brain. So the brain grows from the bottom to the top, okay? Uh, the bottom part of the brain is where the brain meets the brainstem. That's called the amygdala. And so that's the God-given part of our brain uh, for flight, fight, flight, or freeze. So when we're, when we're anxious or we feel a threat in our life and our kids are the same way, it's the part of the brain that just starts to, to jump around. And the higher functioning parts of the brain behind the eyes 
they're known for problem solving, uh, social skills, emotion regulation, uh, cognitive flexibility, and self-control. But here's the reality. The reason that emotional safety is the key to getting all these major outcomes in our kids is that when a child is overwhelmed, they're not thinking straight. When the bottom part of the brain, the fight, flight, or freeze is going off, what happens is, is the higher functioning parts of the brain behind the eyes shuts down. And so our children don't have the ability to problem solve. They don't have the ability to have social skills or emotion regulation in that moment until they are calm. It's why when we lecture our children, when they are emotionally overwhelmed, it feels like it goes in one ear and out the other, right? So we want to lead the, the, the first key component of creating space for emotional intelligence is to lead in grace and follow in truth. So number one, we're going to walk through five of them tonight of five ways to enter our children's story, to enter into their world and, and help them uh, write their story, to help them tell their story. The first one is to lead in grace and follow in truth. Now, there was a, a dad of a 14-year-old that I remember working with, and he called me one night uh, because his daughter uh, had come home from school and she wanted to go to a Friday night football game. And her dad said no. And she looked at her dad and she said, dad, I hate you. And she went storming to her room. Now, creating a posture of emotional safety within the context of the home when your child's fight, flight and freeze is going off often will trigger our fight, flight and freeze as a parent. I mean, how many of us as parents, our daughter or our son says, dad, I hate you and goes storming to their room. What is our initial reaction? I mean, let's be honest. Don't you ever speak to me that way again. You go to your room. I'm taking your phone for a month and no, you're not going to that Friday night football game. Do you understand me? Right. And it's like, imagine the wall when we punish negative emotion, when we punish uncomfortable emotion. And I'm not saying there's not disrespect there. There is. But there's something deeper going on within the heart of our children in that moment. That fight, flight, and freeze is going off. For the reaction to supersede the moment or the situation means there's something deeper going on. And so for, for his daughter to punish the negative emotion would not be healthy. Uh, another way that you do this is uh, that we tend to do this as parents is minimizing the negative emotion. So just saying, it's just a Friday night football game. Who cares? or dismissing it and saying, don't be mad at me, right? And just kind of walking away and dismissing it. And, and, and that's more of a permissive style, right? The posture of emotional safety that we're describing here is the ability to lead in grace and follow in truth. This is how Jesus came. This is how Jesus presented himself. You look throughout scripture that the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery about to be stoned. He always leads in relationship. He always leads in grace and he follows in truth. He came full of grace and truth. And so to lead in grace in a situation like this, and if I were again live with you, I would get down on my knee. Uh, if we were in person, I would get down on my knee. I would hold out my hands to enter into her world, the ability to be able to enter into her world and say, honey, what is it about that Friday night football game that matters to you so much? And what that dad found out about his daughter was that she had been rejected by a group of friends uh, from the previous school year that she would hang out with. And, this, and she would see them posting pictures on Instagram and, and Snapchat of them hanging out without her. And this was the first Friday night they invited her to be a part of something. And her dad said no. So imagine what's going on in her inner world 
when we punish, dismiss, or minimize negative emotion, what happens is, is we build a massive wall between our heart and our children's hearts because we we look at the behavior rather than 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 the soul of what's happening in the in, in our child's heart, right? And so our ability to lead in grace is what allows us to be able to enter into their world to calm their brain and get them to think straight. And this dad's ability to do this, which is what he did. Because he called me and said, hey, what do we do? Like, he's like, I want to punish her and I want to give her, you know, consequences and whatnot. But her, what he did was he was able to ask her what was going on. She told him he was then able to state his concern. My concern is that if you now now if you go to this football game, they're going to reject you there. And so what they did was they involved they, they got into problem solving together to put a plan together for her to go to the football game him to be nearby at the football game for her to have an out if anything went wrong. But then after the game, there was the consequence, but he was able to enter into her world and help her calm her brain and understand what was going. And it built the relationship. And so that's the key here to lead in grace and to follow in truth. Because when we lead in grace, what we do is we have a calming effect on our children's brains. Now, here's the thing that I want to talk about as it relates to this from a scriptural perspective, because I believe the Apostle Paul was the first neuroscientist. Okay, if you look at Philippians chapter four, Paul is writing to the church of Philippi and he's in prison. Right. So he and, and, and by the way, he didn't have the rights in prison that our prisoners have today in, in America. Right. So, I mean, his conditions were not good. In what, what he's writing here in Philippians chapter four, as he writes this in verse five, he says, the Lord is near. Uh. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be made known to all or let your reasonableness be made known to all, depending on the on, on the translation. That word gentleness or reasonable reasonableness is your power in relationship under control. Let your power in a relationship be under control. You have self-control. Let your gentleness be made known to all. The Lord is near. Therefore, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, so with gratitude, make your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the powerful piece about this is that it's not until that point that Paul then writes this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is pure, anything true, excellent, praiseworthy, noble, what does he write? Think on these things. Listen, when your children are yelling at you, or let's go to your spouse, you come home for work. If you're married, you come home from work and your spouse says, are you going to do something with them? Where were you all day? What, you know, or, or, or you're, you're, you're the one that's at home and your husband or your, your, your wife says, what's for dinner? What have you been doing all day? Right? Are we thinking of things that are pure and true and lovely and excellent, and noble and praiseworthy about our spouse or our loved ones? No. Why? Because our fight, flight and freeze is going off and all we want to do is defend ourselves. I think Paul understood that when we are anxious and overwhelmed, if we don't label it, if we don't talk about it, if we don't give it to God, when we do it has a calming effect on our brain, so much so that God has a peace that surpasses all understanding. It has such a calming effect on our brain that we can think straight, right? I believe in a finite way we as parents are a peace. We can provide a peace that calms our children's brains so they can think straight in overwhelming situations. That's the power of leading in grace and following 
in truth, which leads us to number two, talk about emotions. Have a home where talking about emotions is normal. It's healthy. It's important. You know, when I uh, first started counseling uh, years ago, uh, the, the, consti- uh, the, the, my, the people I uh, counseled the most were juvenile delinquents. And um, a few years in, I was counseling juvenile delinquents who were court appointed to me to uh, go through counseling, right? So they're court appointed, they're, they're ordered to go through counseling. And my job was to get them to feel remorse for their victims in the time that I had with them. Well, as I got to meet these kids, I, I realized so many of them through the years, they had nobody who had sat down with them, a lot of, in, a, in most cases, who ever really listened to their own feelings. These kids didn't know how to feel remorse because nobody ever felt caring or loving towards them. In fact, uh, so, so what I would do ultimately is I would give them a feelings chart in the very first session so that they could label, learn to label their emotions when they were sad, when they were angry, and, and they could put language to that. And the reason for this is because the brain also grows from the right to the left. So the right side of the brain is that here and now experiential part of the brain. It's what's happening right now. The left side of the brain is the linguistic side of the brain. It's the language processing. And what I call the middle part of the brain, it's called the corpus callosum. I like to call it the binding of the book. Because what happens is, is when we put language to what it is we're experiencing, it, the neurons wire together in such a way that we write a coherent story. But what happens when we don't write a coherent story? We react out of our fight, flight, and freeze. So for example, this uh, one juvenile delinquent I was working with, I remember one night, I, um, he, he wanted to uh, go, we had a five o'clock appointment and he wanted to go play basketball with his friends and postpone the appointment to later at night. This was before I had kids. I was married, but I hadn't had kids yet. And I remember him uh, reaching out to me and saying, I really uh, cannot, can we postpone to later in the evening? And though I could have done it, I didn't. I wanted to uh, model setting healthy boundaries and sticking to, to, to a schedule. But I also knew I wasn't getting anywhere with this guy, uh, with this young man. And I really wanted to start getting somewhere. And I knew that the way to do that was to trigger emotion. And this was an opportunity for him to get mad at me. Now, we have to be comfortable with people getting mad at us. We have to be comfortable with conflict. Uh, and so I, I, I knew he'd get mad at me. And so I said, no, we're going to do it at 5 o'clock. Well, we held it. We held it. And I remember him sitting there and he's like this the whole time. And he's just looking down. And I, I got to the point where I just said, I brought it to the here and now. And I just said, um, you're, you're, you're mad at me, aren't you? And that's when he looked up at me and he said, no, I'm, and, and he said a word that I won't repeat here tonight. And, and you saw the anger come out and it was a beautiful moment. And, and I got him to talk about why. And he was ready to get up to leave because never before had he been, or at least not in his, to his recollection, his, his MO, if you will, from a neurobiological perspective was that when he got angry with another man or another male, it blew up and it either ended in a fight or it ended up in them leaving. And he was ready to walk out and leave. And I was able to sit with him and I was okay with him being angry at me. To the point that in that session, it was the first time that I had seen him come to tears. And he opened up about his dad and how his, 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 the unhealthy relationship that he had with his absent father all the years. And we finally were getting somewhere because it was the first time he had a somebody 
who he could be safe with in the context of his negative emotion, in the context of his overwhelmingness, that somebody wasn't going to leave him and that somebody was going to sit with him in it and be okay with that. And so when we think, feel, and relate at the same time, thinking, feeling, and relating at the same time is when we are wiring everything together in the brain, right? And so the same thing is true with our kids, but our ability to be able to talk about emotion and label it is what wires the here and now with that other side of the brain. So I talk about teenagers and juvenile delinquents. Let me go to our young kids. So there was one particular day that I remember our daughter, Kennedy, she's six now. This might've been about a year ago. So I think she was five and maybe even getting ready to turn six. Maybe she could have been, she was in that five, six range. And I remember her um, coming home one day that uh, we had been at a friend's house, uh, mutual friends of ours, uh, another family. And I remember her coming home and she said, and she was just angry. And she's our sweet little girl. Like she's so sweet. She's so loving. And I remember her coming home and man, she was just irritable and she was defiant. And it was so out of character for her. And because we had a lot going on, my wife and I were, were pretty much like, you know, better than to act that way. Uh, you know, you know, putting her in time out or like, you know, putting her, we were disciplining, we were disciplining the behavior. Later that night, my wife picked up on it and, and she, she was tucking her in the bed. She started talking to her and she said, honey, what's, what's going on? Like, what happened? Did something happen today? And she said, um, she pulled out the feelings chart. Actually, we have a, uh, we wrote a, a children's book called what am I feeling? We put a feelings chart in the back and my wife actually pulled that feelings chart out with my daughter. And she said, honey, can you just point to what it is that you're feeling? And it got to angry and it got to embarrassed. And, and she said, honey, did something happen today that made you feel embarrassed? When we were at our friend's house, there were two other girls there and those two girls wanted to have playtime by themselves. And they went into a room and shut the door and left Kennedy by herself. And it was her, her, she, we wouldn't have known otherwise. Instead, we would have simply punished the behavior rather than looking at what really happened and her feeling rejected and embarrassed later that day. So make emotion language in your home a common thing, a common practice. Number three, celebrate your kids for who they are. Don't mourn who they're not. Celebrate your kids for who they are. Don't mourn who they're not. Uh, my friend Frank uh, Tate uh, talks about this a lot. He really taught me this as it related to my, to my kids. Uh, he's a mentor and a friend of mine. But in Proverbs 22, 6, it says this, raise your children or train a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. Now, that's a promise. not a, It's a proverb, not a promise. And we can unpack that verse later. A lot of times we throw it around as a promise in the church. And it, it's not. It's a proverb. Generally speaking, if you raise your children in the way that they should go, not the way you want them to go. Right. It says in the way they should go, not the way you want them to go. A lot of times we have parental agendas because we're not comfortable with what our children are, uh, you know, are doing or, or, or activities that they're in. We don't understand it. We don't know it. I remember there was one particular day I had a mom come up to me. Uh, her son was 12. And she said, Josh, she said, my son's learning how to rap and I have no idea what to do. And I and and so I walked through a list of questions for her. And I just said, well, is he um, hanging out with kids that he otherwise shouldn't be hanging out with? You know, First Corinthians 15, 33 says bad company corrupts good character. And so I said, you know, is he hanging out with kids that, you know, he'd be, she said, no, he's hanging out with his youth group. These are good kids. These are kids who love Jesus. And, and I said, was well, he listening to lyrics that are, you know, uh, you know, uh, degrading to women or, you know, and otherwise violent or that he shouldn't be listening to. And she said, no, he's listening to Lecrae, you know, who's a Christian rap artist. 
And I said, then I only got one piece of advice for you. And I got down on my knee. I just spoke this talk or a talk similar to this. I got down on my knee right in front of her and I held out my hands and I looked up at her and I said, learn to rap. And, uh, and, and, and be, because here's why, if you don't, I, I told her this, if you don't, he will find somebody else who will learn how to rap with him and it will just build a wall between your heart and his. Yes, you may not like the music. It might not be your cup of tea, but we want to enter into our children's worlds and learn, have them teach us about what they're doing, have them, us becoming students of our children so that we can raise them and set them up, find their strengths, champion their strengths and raise them in the way that they should go so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. Otherwise, the opposite of that is, is a lot of times we shame our kids or, or they just feel like they're not um, living up to our expectations as parents. I had to deal with this early on with my own kids because I was a baseball player and a wrestler. I love playing baseball. I love wrestling. And our son, our firstborn son, at this point, he is not into sports at this time. I mean, he, he does karate. He does Ninja Warrior and that type of thing. But what he loves is music. He plays the piano. In fact, I told him I had we had he was playing the piano in the other room here. And I said, buddy, at 645 tonight, I need you to stop playing the piano so that. But guess what I'm doing right now? I'm learning how to play the piano, too, because I want to enter into their world. And, and I want to do I, I, I just want to be a part of their world. I want to I want to champion them and their strengths. And now he's he's ahead of me. So he teaches me some things from time to time. And and that's great because it empowers him. It lifts his spirit in the strengths that God's given him. And so we want to celebrate our kids for who they are, not mourn who they're not. Uh, number four is this. Right your wrongs. Right your wrongs. When I yelled at my son. Uh, and my daughter, uh, when I yelled and I yelled, stop, I had to enter into his world and into my daughter's world. And I had to say, I am so sorry for what daddy, the way daddy just spoke to you. I am so sorry for, and when we, what we do is when you get down on your knee and you apologize, and by the way, if you have teenagers, you might be standing on a chair to get at eye level. So the illustration of me um, getting on my knee and entering our children's world might be you standing on a chair to enter your teenager's world. But the idea is to get in their eye level, to go into their world. And so what it does, and, and, and here's something that I, I really want to help us understand, because some of us might have grown up in homes where we never heard our parents apologize, where it would have looked weak to apologize to my child. But here's the reality. The research shows this. It says a word called repair. Gottman, this is John Gottman's research. A word called repair is the ultimate of relationships. In fact, what does the Bible call it? It calls it forgiveness. And how much does Jesus tell us to practice it? A lot. 70 times 7. The idea is that we, we seek forgiveness when we, uh, the forgiveness of somebody else when we have wronged them, right? And so why is this powerful? Listen, he, here's why this is so powerful. And this is where the deep breath comes into play. Because a lot of you are sitting there tonight, you're watching this and you're thinking, I have messed up so much. I have yelled at my kids. I have said things I regret. I've been the parent who's punished their negative emotion. I've been the parent who's dismissed it. I've been the parent who's minimized it. Listen, we have all been there. Here's what's powerful about this. John Gottman in his emotion coaching research found that if you get this emotional safety thing, this emotional intelligence thing right with your kids just two out of five times, you can still get the outcomes you desire in your kids. Why? 
because of this word called repair, because of forgiveness. Guys, listen, even Shaq shot better than 40% from the free throw line. All right, guys, two out of five times. This means we have to give ourselves grace. We have to give ourselves grace, which leads to number five. Uh, I think this is the most powerful one of all. Um, this is the most powerful one of all, and, and, and it's super critical. And that is this, prioritize who you're becoming. Prioritize who you're becoming as a parent. Um, I'm going to give you a couple research studies real quick just to uh, set the stage for this one. Um, Google actually did a, a, a research study uh, a number of years ago, about in, back in, I think it was 2017 or 2018, and they looked at their they looked at their hiring process and what they wanted to do is they wanted to define and find out if their hiring process really worked. And, and, and they were at that point hiring for STEM skills. They were hiring for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And what they found is that of their most productive teams within Google, STEM skills, the hard skills were coming in dead last of their most productive teams. What was coming in at the top was emotional safety, number one, empathy, number two, and emotional intelligence, number three. It was the soft skills because, and they changed their hiring process. And so is a lot of other companies now um, across the country. They've changed their hiring process to focus on soft skills because it was the, the soft skills are the thing that can't be taught. You can teach hard skills. It's hard to teach soft skills and character development in relationships and how we function as a team. The reason this is so powerful is because a guy named Robert Epstein out of Harvard University a couple years ago did a meta analysis. And what he was looking at is he wanted to define what are the top 10 parenting strategies to get the outcomes we most desire in our kids. And what he found was this of the top 10 most uh, the top 10 most effective parenting strategies to get the outcomes we desire in our kids. Uh, I'm just going to say this number seven was behavior modification or discipline. It was the seventh on the list. Most of us spend so much time thinking about discipline. Now, I said earlier, we want to lead in grace and follow in truth. Doesn't mean we don't implement truth. What it means is that we don't lead in truth. As my friend John Townsend says, truth without grace will always be received as condemnation. Truth without grace will always be received as condemnation. And if you have, if your, um, if your tendency is to lead in truth or your tendency is to dismiss because you're afraid to implement truth, it's important that we're aware of who we're becoming as adults. And the reason is because the top three parenting strategies to get the outcomes we most desire in our kids out of this meta analysis. So meta analysis is where they take all kinds of research and they put it together and they, they look at the, at the final results. What he found, number three, the third most effective parenting strategy to get the outcomes you're looking for in our kids is how you treat your spouse or how you treat a co-parent in a divorce situation. Number two, this is the most convicting of all, a parent's ability to manage his or her own stress. A parent's ability to manage his or her own fight, flight, or freeze response in an overwhelming situation. And the first one was love and affection. And I want to say this. I would argue that the top three parenting strategies to get the outcomes we're looking for in our kids have nothing to do with a direct relationship between me and my children. They have everything to do with who I'm becoming. Because even First John writes this, we love, why? Because he first loved us. Our ability to show love and affection for, to our kids happens when we experience love ourselves. And I just want to say this. For a lot of us, that might look like a relationship with God. Uh, a lot of people struggle. I know I've struggled through the years. 
How do you really feel loved by God? How do you really understand that? I just want to encourage you, whether it's a small group or your local church or some type of connection to to get into healthy relationships within the context of your church uh, might be a way to do that. One of the ways that we have done that, uh, just being very transparent with you all, is through therapy. My wife and I are huge proponents of therapy. Uh, I don't believe that therapy is for crazy people. I think it's for broken people. And I haven't met a single person on this planet who's not broken in some way. As my friend Miles Adcock says, he says, uh, ther- uh, you don't need therapy. You deserve therapy. And so as you look at research, I can sum it all up into one primary conclusion. And that is that our kids become who we are. And so I just really want to encourage you, take the time to have self-care. Take the time to live out of rest, whether that's entering into Sabbath and practicing Sabbath and a day of rest, uh, whatever that looks like for you. I really encourage you to find self-care and focus on who you're becoming, because just as our children deserve us to enter into their world, so too do we as adults deserve somebody else to enter into ours and help us tell our story. Thank you. Great. Lovely. Thank you, Josh, very much. If we were here again in person um, in our sanctuary, there would be wild applause for you now. And uh, <laughs> I would hope so I'll, anyway. <laughs> I'll represent uh, all the people listening. I'm going to give Josh a chance to rest his voice for a second and make a few quick announcements. Um, we've started to get a few questions. I will start with that one. And so again, if you have a question you'd like uh, offered up to Josh, then please uh, email it to us or send it on one of our social media platforms and we will try to get um, through them. Um, I wanna lift up a couple things though, uh, before we get to that. Uh, First of all, our next event um, is March 25th, (coughs) featuring an artist, uh, Lanisha Rousey. Um, on Faith and Art, How Creativity Heals. Uh, So again, March 25th, um, that's another Thursday, 7 o'clock. If you would like to be reminded of that and other upcoming events, please uh, join our email list on our website or um, like our uh, social media platforms on Facebook and Instagram, uh, and you'll be alerted to those. I will also say we are going to be doing a giveaway. Um, If Josh were with us again in person, I will say, by the way, he's never been to the Twin Cities. He's evidently flown through them. Uh, So he was a little disappointed he couldn't be here, maybe another time. But we would have had a whole bunch of these books available for him to sign. Uh, As it happens, we're going to give some away. Uh, So on our social media platforms, again, you'll find a prompt there. Respond to the prompt and you'll be prompt and you will be entered into that giveaway for this. And I will also mention, uh, in addition to his book, uh, at St. Philip the Deacon, uh, we do a quarterly magazine called Inspire. And in this issue, uh, this is the winter 2020 issue. Uh, the theme is embodiment. Uh, there's a wonderful interview uh, with Josh. And if you would like to get a copy of that, uh, indicate that either again through email or on our social media uh, platforms. And we're happy to drop one of those in the mail um, to you. Um, I do want to also just say a word of thanks to all of our amazing sponsors who make these events possible and have made them possible now uh, for 18 years at no cost to the people who who either come in person or who are watching tonight. Um, and so let me, there are a whole lot of individual sponsors to each of you. Um, and I'm realizing, by the way, I'm looking at the wrong camera. Excuse me. I'm what I'm talking to Josh on the Zoom thing, but I should be looking there. Excuse me. Um, anyway, uh, To all of our individual sponsors, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, 
And to our corporate sponsors, I will remind folks of who you are. And I want to say a special word of thanks to you for your underwriting support. That's Crossroads Financial Group, Ulrich Real Estate Group, Mally Design, Augio Marketing, Productivity Inc., Rapid Packaging, and Mastercraft Labels. Um, so to all of you who uh, make these events uh, available to the community at no cost, uh, I want to say again a strong word of thanks, thanks, thanks. We're so grateful to you for making them possible. Um, so I think, again, I apologize, I was looking in the wrong place. It's one of the lessons I'm still getting used to here with this virtual world. Um, I think we're going to move to some questions now. Um, so let me start, Josh, with uh, one from another. Uh, I'm not going to include names here, even though some people are giving those. Uh, I'm going to make these anonymous. This is coming from Golden Valley, which is another western suburb. Uh, this individual says, I have two girls, eight and five, and find that the older one especially is increasingly influenced by peers and worried about how others view her. Any tips for how to help kids weather when other people are unkind to them and build resilience and self-esteem in what is sometimes a hurtful world? Yeah, great question. And and we find uh, the very same thing. I mean, our kids are eight and six, same same age range. And we're dealing a lot with the same same type of, of situations. And one of the ways that we do that is we really capitalize on Deuteronomy 6. You know, Moses talks about four key times of the day that we get to be with our kids, uh, morning, uh, mealtime, when we're driving, and then also at bedtime. We're huge on mealtime and bedtime. So, uh, and we use those two times of the day to, to really talk about and make a conversation. What I would encourage you to do is make that number two component, talking about emotions, uh, a normal part of the rhetoric in your, like a, just a normal routine in your home. So it might be uh, that you around the dinner table, just go around the dinner table and talk about one negative emotion that kids felt that day or one positive emotion that they felt that day. And you can do both. And it kind of looks like a high and low, but what you're doing instead is you're giving a positive and, a, and an uncomfortable emotion and they, and, and it gives them the ability and you as parents can lead the way by saying, you know, I felt rejected today by this, or I felt jealous. And obviously you want to do it age appropriately, but it gives your kids the ability to also do the same thing. And, and if dinner time isn't that time, then a lot of times because there's more people around the dinner table, sometimes our son or our daughter will say, Dad, can I just talk to you when you tuck me in the bed tonight? And they want to just do it by themselves privately. And so then we use the bedtime when I'm private or my wife is private in the room with them one on one. They can share and they can feel vulnerable enough to share that. And so what we do is, is we're really, really huge on combining number two and number three. So celebrate who they are. We're building their strengths. Um, we're teaching them who they are in, in, in Christ. Uh, so we do that through scripture. And, and I just really want to encourage you, this is an ongoing journey, right? If our, if our children picked up a lesson that we gave them immediately or, or they obeyed us one time and they listened the rest time, our parenting would be over. Like we wouldn't even have to do that anymore. Um, and so you, you want to see this for the long run. You want to see this for the long journey of what it is that you're creating in your home and for you the next, you know, 10 to 15 years, uh, because that's what you have. So you, you see this as a 10 to 15 years of creating an atmosphere of being able to encourage them in their strengths uh, and, 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 and allow them to feel safe enough to talk about their emotions, because that is then when you have the open door to speak truth into their life about who they are and who they're spending time with. And, and, and you have influence then uh, around that. So, so those would be the encouraging things that I would, I, I would encourage you to do. 
Okay, great. Thank you. Um, next question we've got says, uh, does what you say tonight mean I am never supposed to yell or to feel bad if I do yell? And the follow-up to that is, what if they're out of control? Uh, there's a final part of the question, but it actually blends in with an, another question, um, which I'll connect it to. So, yeah, can you uh, again, do that? Yeah. So, yeah, should I, what, am I never supposed to yell or feel bad if I do yell? And what if the kids are out of control? Yeah. Great, 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 great question. Okay. So, remember, two out of five times, grace upon grace. All right. You will yell. I think one of the things that I would encourage you to do is not yell as much as you can from the standpoint of, do you like people yelling at you? And, and I think as we think about the atmosphere of our home, think about the, the atmosphere that you want to create, a spirit of peace, a spirit of calm, a spirit of, right? And so, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, Bob Goff, uh, who's an author and a speaker, he, he wrote something on Instagram one day that was in one sentence that summed up that entire book that you're giving away there. It took me an entire book to say, and he said it in one sentence, uh, be the adult that you needed when you were a child. Be the adult that you needed when you were a child. And so I would just really encourage you uh, to say, yeah, number one, focus on who you're becoming so that you're yelling less. Um, but number two, you're going to because you're human. You're going to mess up because you're human. So I think that's where forgiveness comes into play. So give yourself grace um, in, when, when those moments happen. Don't beat yourself up over it. Give yourself grace in it. And then the second part of the question was, uh, what was the second part there, Tim? Uh, let's see. Oh, I guess it was, um, should I feel bad if I yell? And I guess sort of, what if what if the kids are out of control? I mean, is that I mean, an if the kids are out of control? Absolutely. Fantastic question. There are moments when, and this, thank you for asking this question. There are moments when truth in that moment has to trump grace. There are moments when if your kids are... If my son or daughter is, you know, takes off on, you know, uh, a bike, you know, and there's a car coming, I need to rip my son or daughter off of that, but I need to get them out of harm's way, right? There's times where you have to get your kids out of harm's way. You don't have time to sit down and, 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 and lead in grace because you got to get out the door uh, and the kids aren't listening. At that moment, your truth wall has to come up. Uh, the, the key is, is that over time that your grace and truth walls are, are, are level, right? That, that, that you're not building a wall, whole wall of grace and being overly permissive and that you're not building a huge wall of truth and that you're being overly, um, you know, uh, uh, authoritarian, right? It's this idea that these walls and, and the best that we can is leading grace and following truth. So, yes, there are times we have to lead in truth. Um, the key is not sacrificing relationship in that moment especially if you have young kids and they're three, four, and they're just going nuts. Uh, there's so much overwhelm in their brain. They need, they need an authority figure to come into play and, 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 and settle it. And, and so, yeah, that would be my encouragement there. Okay. Excellent. Uh, let's see. What should a parent's response be to rage from a seven-year-old boy? Hmm. Yeah. Great question. So my first question to you would be, when did the rage start? Um, and, and what were the patterns going on in the child's life when the rage started? Was there a, was there a life circumstance that changed? Was there a divorce? Uh, was there a, a parental separation of some kind? Was there a change in school? Uh, was, were, was the, were they picked on at school? Were they, you know, uh, did something happen uh, in that child's life, like to look back, I always like to look at patterns. And if there was a behavior change, 
what happened around the time of the behavior change uh, that could be resulting from the rage? Because the reality is there's rage coming from that child, but there's something deeper going on uh, underneath it. And our ability to be able to get underneath it and see what it is, if we're constantly leading in truth, um, we're going to, uh, we're just going to continue to spin them into the rage. And so we want to be able to lead in grace. There's a great book out there. I would highly recommend it. If, if, if your seven-year-old is explosive or your uh, seven-year-old is, is acting out of rage a lot, there's a great book called The Explosive Child uh, by Ro Dr. Ross Green. And I would highly recommend, uh, there's a website that he has called uh, livesinthebalance.org, livesinthebalance.org. And I would highly recommend uh, his research and his, his materials for that. All right, excellent. Uh, thank you. Next question is, uh, what is a good way to help a child with anxiety? Good question. So again, it's creating that atmosphere. So I think walking through all five uh, steps, you know, that, that we talked about, I think there's two things that we do in our home. So I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you in this because we see this uh, with our own kids. Uh, anxiety is, or worry. It's funny. We have a children's book coming out in April called, what do I do with worry? And so, um, kids have all kinds of worries. So I just really want to encourage you. It's not uncommon for kids to have worries. Okay. I do think that kids today are more worrisome uh, in our culture than, and, and obviously with living in a pandemic has, has influenced that dramatically uh, being, you know, pulled from school and that type of thing. Um, two big things that we do. Number one is we help our kids. And again, I'm going back to that. I'm just going to go back and just repeat we create an atmosphere of being able to talk about emotion, okay? So use a feelings chart, uh, use bedtime, dinner time, whatever those times are of the day where you can get your child to talk about what it is that they're worried about. What is it that concerns them? Don't make fun of it. Don't dismiss it. Don't minimize it, but just listen, right? And so when, when we do that, what we're doing is we're wiring the right and left side of the brain. We're helping our children put language to what it is they're experiencing. I remember our son one night in the middle of the night came over. He came over crying because... He had been, um, we were in our upstairs, we have a playroom slash guest room upstairs in the second floor. And it was April, it was springtime here in Nashville. It's about the two weeks out of the year you can leave your window open before the humidity sets in. And I remember this was before he could read. I remember him looking at the screen, window was up and he looked at the screen and said, dad, what does that say? And I didn't think anything of it. I just said, caution. It's a, I just said it out loud, caution, screen will not prevent child from falling out window. Well, he just kind of slowly backed away from the window what well, two thirty in the morning, he came over and he was in tears, his bottom lip quivering. And he comes over and I don't know if he had a dream. I don't know what it was, but he was feeling it. And he said, daddy, I, I fall out the window. And, and he, so he was so scared about falling out the window. Well, I took him over to his bed. I put him in and as, as, as a good dad would, I, I just said, okay, buddy, we'll go back to sleep. We'll talk about it in the morning. I wanted to get back to sleep. Well, not more than five minutes later, our daughter Kennedy starts screaming and crying. And so I went to get her. And as I did, he lost it again. He did not want me out of that room. He was just overall, he was about four at the time. So my wife, Christy heard it and she went in and she laid with him for the next 30 minutes and just asked him questions. And she just, she just asked him questions and she got him to talk facts. Like, what were you doing in the playroom? What did you see? What color was it? Right. When they're overwhelmed in emotion, when we're in crisis, what we want to do is we want to put, we, they're already feeling the emotion. Your kids are already feeling it. What you want them to do is you want them to put 
facts and language to what's happening because it has a calming effect on their brain. So just ask questions. Think about, there's no dumb question. Help put puzzle pieces together about what's happening. Try to put the puzzle in their, of their brain together by just asking questions. Another way you can do this is get them to draw the, uh, the question or get them to draw their scenario. Draw their what if, right? It's always a what if. Well, what if, uh, you know, what if mommy or daddy dies? What if uh, my friends don't like me? What if um, the stars fall out of the sky and catch my house on fire, right? Wait, what if, it's a what if. Have the child draw, have your children draw the what if because even for them, drawing it out is helping them put language to it. And so I would encourage that. And then the last thing we do, sorry, this is a long-winded answer, but it's, I think so many parents struggle with this with their kids. I am, as, as a parent, I am consistently praying over our home and I am renouncing a spirit of fear over our home and I'm praying a spirit of peace over our home. And we are playing uh, worship music as much as we possibly can throughout the day here and there, just throughout our home, the atmosphere of our home, that, that it's peaceful. And so especially if I experience or start to feel fear come into our home from from any anywhere, we just we pray and we pray a lot. And we've just I haven't always done that. It's only been in the last couple of years that we've really, really um, started embracing this as a, 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 because we've seen it work. Uh, we've just seen God show up in, in remarkable ways. And so I just also, as much as I talk about research and the best parenting strategies, I don't think there's a more powerful parenting strategy on the planet than prayer. Good. Excellent. Uh, and we're getting some great questions here, and I, I, I hope we'll have enough time to get through all of them. It, by, by the way, in a typical... Um, live event. We would typically go till about 8.15 or so. Uh, we'll see how we do here. Maybe we'll get out a little before then, but I, I do want to get to these because they're great questions. So the next one, Josh, is um, how do you navigate when your spouse isn't on the same page on techniques with emotions and parenting? Man, such a great question because this is a very common one. Um, I'm trying to think about a story. I'm not even going to tell the story because I don't want to. Uh, I know there's too many questions coming in. I, I'm just going to tell you that my wife and I have dealt with this on multiple occasions ourselves. And I think the biggest, uh, the most important thing that you can do is be emotionally safe. You do what you can to practice these principles and be emotionally safe for your child. That's number one. And we get this a lot with co parenting as well in divorce situations. You know, you can't control what your ex spouse is doing or what the other parent is doing. Uh, but you can control the environment of your home. And that's the key. You control what you can control. And that's the environment of your home. You can control who you are as a parent. Um, so that's number one. Number two, uh, I would start practicing these skills with your spouse. And then I would just simply ask, uh, you know, one of the biggest ways that we do that, because you have to have a lot of times what Christy and I have found in our own parenting when we've differed is because we weren't talking about it. We weren't we weren't as far apart as we thought we were. What happens is, is we think we see our spouse reacting one way to our child and we go to the opposite extreme because we're afraid about what this outcome is going to do, but we don't talk about it with our spouse. We just react out of the opposite. So when I react this way out of this extreme, Christy goes to this extreme, right? I remember one day calling her and she just said, I was traveling, I was speaking. She said, our son's in boot camp," And I'm like, what are you talking about boot camp?" She's like, well, and, and what it was, was you're not, you're too lenient. You're not disciplining. I have to. And, and so it was like, holy smokes, like we need to get the same page here. And so the communication piece is huge. And so I want to encourage you in a marital situation. A lot of these 
tactics fall true in marriage, right? So when I talk about uh, you're around the dinner table, uh, we have a practice called 15 minutes a day with our spouse. When you're around the dinner table, you know, you wouldn't do this around the dinner table. You'd do this when your kids were in bed or it was just the two of you. Uh, But share one positive emotion and one negative or uncomfortable emotion from the day with your spouse. Like do that together. Take each day because the the Bible says to guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. We have to guard when we're married, we become one flesh. We got to guard our marital heart. And we don't do that well in this westernized, individualistic American culture that's just busy, 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 taking kids from one thing to the next. We don't get into the heart of our spouse. If you just take 10, 15 minutes a day just to do that, what you do is you start to be able to talk about real stuff and you can bring the parenting situation up in a way where you lead in grace and you follow in truth. There's a reason your spouse is reacting the way that they are, and it has something to do with their own story. Right. It has to do with their own fears around parenting or their own fears around the way that your child is going to turn out. And so you've got to be able to get into that and truly understand what is the motive behind your parenting strategy, not condemning it, but just saying, help me understand it. So because I want to support you in it. And when we approach it that way, there's a much different outcome um, as long as your spouse is willing to engage it. So. Okay. excellent. Next one is, uh, what can adults do to help teen, teens feel emotionally safe in our cancel culture? Oh, wow. That's a very great question. Um, <laughs> what, can adults, what can adults do to feel emotionally safe in our cancel culture? Right? What, what, like, what can adults do to help teens feel? I know. And I'm oh, but, oh I, sure. I'm fair saying, enough. Fair <laughs> what enough. What do we do, right? <laughs> How do we feel emotionally safe in it? Um, you know, I think it's um, it's such a powerful um, and such a, a, a weird dynamic that we're living in in our society and in our culture today. And I think one of the biggest things to be able to do, and, and again, I don't want to belabor this. I don't want to make it sound like it's, um, uh, but I'm going to keep going back to these principles because I talked about them and I think these principles, I've, I've we use them all the time. Um, but that idea of celebrating your kids, becoming a student of your kids, becoming a student of who they are. And, and as a result, like depending on what it is that they're afraid of as it relates to, to the cancel culture or as it relates to them getting made fun of or as it relates to them getting rejected or as it relates to them um, being, being the aggressor, being the one who's doing the canceling, being the one who is, right, um, being able to enter into their world and understand their perspective. Because the reality is, is they are growing up in a, in a, very different time than when we grew up as kids, right? I didn't grow up. I'm 41. I didn't grow up with a cell phone. I didn't grow up with, you know, the technology. We weren't, you know, this is a whole, this is a digital, these are digital natives. These are kids who grew up with screens. They grew up with more information than we ever grew up with. So they have more access to world information. And a lot of times it's overwhelming to the soul. Uh, we, We weren't meant as humans to carry all the weight of the world. And a lot of times our teens are carrying that and they're entering into justice conversations that um, that are very powerful and important conversations, but they're doing it in, they need other people, other voices to be able to bounce, you know, all these things off of, like to learn to listen. And I think one of the most powerful, I think one of the most powerful verses in all of scripture and the most sanctifying set of verses in all of scripture is James 1, 19 and 20. It says, brothers and sisters, be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry uh, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. 
And I see that in both ways. One for me in our cancel culture uh, that we live in to first listen. I want to have two ears and one mouth for a reason. So I want to listen to what's going on around me. I want to listen to what's happening. And I want to filter that through truth. I want to filter that through relationships. I want to filter that through through the caring of the soul of the humans that we get to serve, right? And so if I'm leading in that way, um, then I'm helping my children or my teenagers walk through that as well, whether they're on the side of the, you know, being angry, whether they're on the side of being shamed and, and cast out and canceled uh, or what they believe being canceled, um, their ability to be able to surround themselves with healthy voices is, is just really important and very powerful. So let me, let me add one more key to that. There is a, I think it's really, really important that we help our kids understand the varying levels of um, the, you know, we just did a podcast episode recently. We have a podcast called Famous at Home Podcast. Uh, it'll come out in a few weeks, but it's, uh, we interviewed some friends and we talked about friendship. And when it comes to teenagers, when it comes to adults and friendship, but when it comes to teenagers and friendship, this idea of the tabernacle, right? And, and there's, there's the outer court, right? There's the inner court and then there's the holy of holies. And we have these relationships. We have a lot of outer court friends. We have, you know, that type of thing. Your inner court is kind of your dinner friends. And then your holy of holies are like your closest people that you can do life with, that you can share your deepest, you know, uh, you know, secrets with, that you can, you just, you hold each other accountable in, right? And a lot of times what's happening is, is in our cancel culture with Twitter and all these other social media platforms, we're allowing these outer court voices to speak into our holy of holies and, and, and wreck us. And that's why we need our holy of holies. And I would just really encourage your teenagers to find those close friends that, you know, it says bad company corrupts good character. Who are the holy of holies? Who are the people that speak truth into their life, that give them grace and truth and love and, and that they, that they walk firm in those relationships. Because I think at that point um, it's what keeps us grounded in who we are. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to merge a couple of questions, uh, questions and comments, and I'll let you, I guess, both respond and maybe answer a question. So the comment is, our children are grown, so now we will try to remember these tips when we are around the grandchildren. That's first. And then there's another comment. I'm 75. I've raised three children. I have six grandchildren. For decades, after watching friends raise children and friends of our children raise their children, I have said calm parents raise calm children. You seem to have put science to that observation. Okay, so those are the comments slash questions. And as we were chatting before we began tonight, uh, I mentioned we would likely have some people here tonight whose children are, are grown. Um, so if you want to respond to either of those comments, great. But also, do the principles you're talking about apply to people maybe whose, parent, whose children are grown uh, as well? Or are the principles broader than parenting exclusively? 100% they are. Absolutely. Great questions. The 75-year-old who said that calm parents, calm kids. You know, uh, real quick, I'm going to give you one more study. There's a guy named Vern Bankston out of the University of Southern California. He did a 55-year longitudinal study. So, I mean, imagine following families for 55 years, and he wanted to find what was the key common denominator of faith transmission across the generations. And what he found was relational warmth, particularly he found strongest among fathers, fathers to their kids, relational warmth. I mean, it goes back to this idea of emotional safety, being calm. And I thought, wow, the power of the Heavenly Father's love for us. Like you see that research played out in that study. Um, so yes to that. And, and yes, the research does support that. 
um, in a lot of ways. I, you know, I think about this as because I mean, I have my my mom, my dad passed. Uh, my mom is still alive. They were divorced, and so um, you know, I have my mom and my stepdad alive today. My I got my wife's parents. We got our in laws, and you know, it's funny to watch because I think one of the biggest questions we receive from other parents our of our generation is the tension between in-laws and parents and that type of thing. And a lot of it is it's it's a lot of times parents who grandparents or who are now grandparents with their adult children trying to impose their parenting principles and you know that type of thing onto their kids. And and the biggest thing that I would continue to say is lead in great like follow these lead in grace and follow in truth with your own kids. They're adults now, you know. Um, the Bible doesn't say that as adults, we need to uh, obey our parents. It says we need to honor our parents. And so for me as an adult child with my parents, I want to honor my parents. Right. Um, but as you know, the way that we have such great interaction is that our, our parents aren't imposing on us. They might make suggestions, but they're leading in grace um, in doing that. And so uh, there, there's just a lot of grace. And so I, you know, leading grace, talk about emotions, celebrate your adult children for who they are, and then do the same for your for your um, for your grandkids, you know, find their strengths and their passions and that type of thing. I would think one of the biggest things that um, you know, and continue to prioritize who you're becoming. Like these transfer over in so many relation relational settings. Uh, it's not just parenting, and so yeah, it, it's it's powerful. Excellent, thank you. All right, so I do think um, unless another question comes in, I'm, I'm at the last question, which is great. So we're doing great on time. Uh, and it is maybe, <laughs> it's probably worth a whole other talk. Uh, and it's perhaps a, a, an obvious question given the events of the last year. But the question is, how do you see the current pandemic affecting our children? Uh, great question. Um, yeah, let's do another talk. All right, you guys ready? <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know that we know quite yet, to be quite honest. Um, I don't know that we know. One thing that concerns me, if I'm being truly honest about it, um, uh, and, and again, you have to talk about cancel culture. I have to be careful what I say uh, because, you know, of, 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 you know, it's funny how I have to be careful what I say about masks because I don't know if somebody's going to try to cancel me because of something I'm going to say about masks, right? And so it is, it's so touchy, the world we live in. And I think that's one thing that our children have to, I think that's one of the ramifications of this is, you know, is what I'm saying going to be okay? You know, like what do people think? And, you know, because you have such a division in our country today, my concern with masks and, and I mean, I wear masks. I think, you know, you, you follow the guidelines and whatever. One of my concerns with masks is for kids, especially babies and early kids, children don't know emotion expression or how to uh, read people's faces uh, until they hit about the age of 12. And so when we cover our faces now and we cover our faces more than more often than not, what happens is, is our children aren't reading facial cues. So in an environment where they're already on screens a ton and they aren't necessarily growing in, in emotional intelligence because they're on screens. So screen time would be another uh, way that their brain is being rewired because they're using screens more often. And I'm not talking about screens as it relates to doing school or, or, or interacting like this. What I'm talking about is increased video games, increased TV time, increased, right? That's definitely happening. I know that's happening because we're home more often, right? So um, so, so that's a concern for me. The other concern is just the inability then to, coupled with adults wearing masks all the time, um, it's hard for them to learn how to read emotion. It's hard for them to learn how to read facial cues. And that's why teenagers, if you don't uh, put three exclamation points at the end of your text message, they think you're mad at them, right? It's like, because they, they haven't learned 
all of these other nonverbal skills as it relates to communication. And so one of my biggest concerns is the nonverbal, the the, the, um, interruption of nonverbal cues as it relates to emotions and and being able to socially interact. Um, And then on top of that, you got the mass debates and you know, and you're like, well, you know, in, in, in cancel culture world that we live in, as someone asked, you know, um, you know, you just kids are learning. I think it increases anxiety. I think it's increasing depression. We're seeing that in research as it relates to screen time and, and that type of thing. So so that's my concern. And I think it's why more and more importantly, we need to be paying attention. What The, the one thing that's not talked about in the media that I don't see talked about much every now and again, you'll see it. But the increased rates of abuse at home, you know, you take kids out of school and you put them in abusive home. Like schools are a lot of times, I hear this from teachers a lot. Schools are what's saving kids. You know, uh, they get out of the, they get out of an emotionally unsafe environment. And so during a pandemic, you put these kids in in in, in abusive situations or back in the home. It, it's having a, a mental health effect. I, I don't think we understand the mental health crisis that's that, that's going to hit us after this. And so that's why I'm a huge advocate for more and more and more of us being emotionally safe in the home as parents, because um, that that's that's just key. That that I think it's 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 what it's what's truly important. Um, uh, yeah. So I hope that's helpful. Fabulous. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, Josh. You haven't been had, had a chance to come to the Twin Cities. I hope we'll be able to get you up here at some I point. I love that. But I honor. I'm delighted that you spent a little time with us tonight. So I'm going to say a strong word of thanks to you. I also want to thank all of you who have joined us this evening. Again, particularly uh, folks who are joining us for the first time, thank you for being with us. I will remind you again, please join us on March 25th for our next event. And before we go, um, I'm going to we'll, we'll send this again to you, Josh, but uh, all of our speakers receive a, a black granite plaque. Um, just as a gesture of gratitude and appreciation. And, and it says, with thanks to Joshua Straub for bringing faith to life. And we do thank you very much for being with us, Josh. Thanks you, thank you for joining us. And we will see you next time.